We have one chapter left in, in this great first letter of Peter to these group of persecuted believers. And in every chapter, he has had a reference to suffering in regard to your faith. And we have seen that over and over. And we are looking at today some of the last thoughts on, on Peter in regard to this as far as detail. Now, he will mention suffering again in chapter 5, um, but it will not be as extensive as what has been uh, mentioned and, and written um, up to this particular point in time. He uses some form of the word suffering 16 times in these five chapters. In every chapter, there is a, an aspect of it, and every one of them are connected to not suffering in regard to health things or a loss of job or things like that, but it's suffering that is connected to our faith. So this is connected to persecution, ridicule, uh, slander, um, a number of different things. And, and we will see today, he, he, will, he will say, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. So all of this is connected to how we live our life in the midst of our culture and our culture's perspective of that and the persecution. So the subject matter is suffering for righteousness' sake or suffering for the sake of Jesus. You know, here in America, we, our history is, is much um, littered with, and I don't know if littered is the right word, but filled with um, such great religious liberty. And in our lifetime, we have seen um, the fires of the government's view, view of things in regard to um, even Supreme Court um, things, laws that have been there, perspectives of things where the fires of persecution and perspective of believers has increased. And I personally think this is a good thing for the American church because we have been complacent for a long time. Our faith has not really cost us something and we have cruised along without it really costing much to us. And while I don't like the change in that, sometimes that change is good for the church because there's a purification. And we will talk about that um, today. So the fires, I think, are burning a little bit hotter in our culture today. And in that, we are being forged more into Christ's likeness, which is God's ultimate aim for us. Romans 8.28 says this, that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is what God wants for us, that we would be forged in the fire, that we would think like Jesus, be like Jesus, talk like Jesus, and walk like Jesus. So this idea of persecution is not anything new. And I've talked about this all through this, and I'm gonna, I want to repeat it again. And I want you to hear it again today in John chapter 15. This is not a new concept that Peter is writing about. Jesus said, this is going to be the reality. Now, we live in a country where it's not been the reality, but for most places in the world, it is a reality for them that faith costs. So here's what Jesus said, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would choose you as, or love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, the Son of God who came, if they did that to me, they're going to persecute you also. If they kept my word as you go and do ministry and you proclaim, they'll keep yours also. But all these things are going to do to you, hostility, insult, <clears throat> taking your life, putting you in prison. They are going to do these things to you on account of my name because my name divides people and it divides nations. It divides 
husbands and wives in regard to issues of faith. And so he listened. All of this is going to be done because of my name. And then Jesus said this, because they don't know him, the Father who sent me. So this is not a new theme that Peter is writing about here. And then just the very next chapter, John chapter 16, Jesus said these words, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to put you out of synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming that whoever kills you thinks that they're offering service to God. Remember what, remember the apostle Paul? He was called Saul. He's on his way to Damascus. He thinks he's doing a service to God by arresting Christians, by trying to stomp out this movement connected to Jesus. He th- They are going to think they're offering a service to God and they're going to do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, listen, not if it comes, not possibility, but when the hour comes that you have to stand for your faith and your faith is going to be forged in fire, he says this, you will remember that I told you that this was coming. This is a reality. This is what is going to take place for those who walk with God. And all cases of suffering for faith we must remember that our focus can never be on ourselves it must rest in christ and the reason is he is the supreme model for us and how do you deal with all of this back in chapter 2 21 it said this for to this you have been called to what to unjust suffering that's what he just talked about for to this you have been called because christ also suffered for you He's a model for us that we might walk in his steps, um, Peter talks about there. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten back. And so he becomes the one who is the model for us in what this looks like. And so he becomes the model, and we must remember that our weapons are a little different. We don't fight back with the culture in the way that the world fights back toward us. We fight back. Standing in the promises of God, standing in the truth of that. And so Peter's going to share with us what that looks like, this last part of that today. Y'all ready? All right, let's go. Chapter 4, verse 15. That's kind of our intro to be reminded. I want to put, really want to put 12 and all the way to the end of the chapter. And let's just look at all that together because it's one main thought. I divided it up last week. We looked at 12 through 14 today 15 through 18 so here's what peter writes beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of christ you are blessed peter says because the spirit of glory and the spirit of god rests upon you Then he says this, here's our text today. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Peter says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, the name Christian. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who reject the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs 16, 11. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then he says, he closes it out, therefore let him who suffers according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. All right, let's walk through this. Here's coming out of this idea, and look at verse 14 again. So coming out of this idea, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. So coming out of this idea, there is a right way to suffer in the world. And the right way to suffer for the world in the world is, I love Jesus in such a way that he's my passion, he's my life, and so I'm going to pursue him, I'm going to stand for him, I'm going to teach my kids about him, my church is going to proclaim him, I'm going to go to church where Jesus is the center of everything, and so this is going to be the essence of my life. The result of that is, the world's not going to go, oh man, you are awesome, we're so glad you're a citizen, we're so glad you're my co-worker. I'm so glad that you're this. The world is not going to do that, but God is going to do that. God is moved. God is pleased when our faith rests deeply in him in the midst of things. So there's a right way to suffer, and there's a blessing that's connected with it that literally leads us to rejoice. Acts chapter 5, 41. The apostles leave after being beaten for their preaching and their testimony of Jesus, and they leave saying that they counted it, they left rejoicing, loving the fact that they were beaten and suffered in a manner that was similar to the way that Jesus suffered. And then the very next verse it says, they went back to the temple doing what they had been beaten for. There's an essence of these people that we read about in the New Testament that's very different from you and I, isn't it? There's just nothing that deters them. There's such a passion, there's such a depth to who they are that there was even a rejoicing. So there's a right reason to suffer, but there's also a wrong reason to suffer. And so he mentions it in verse 15. So he says this, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now I hope none of us are the first three, okay? We have a tendency as humans to be the fourth one, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. So he says, suffer for the right purpose, but, but you've, you've got to do that, but don't be a believer in the world and suffer for the wrong reasons. So if you murder, the society's going to come in, and the society's got laws about that, and you're going to be arrested, and so you can't claim that you're a believer, that even though you murdered someone, that that's persecution. That's not, I'll say, a, th- a thief. Now these are pretty self-explanatory to us all right, this morning, these first three. So the second one is, don't be a thief. Don't steal staplers from your business. Don't steal whatever, whatever, whatever the case may be. Don't be a thief, okay? If you're a Christian, don't steal pencils. Don't steal money. Don't, don't do that any, anywhere because we are, we are the prime examples of what it looks like to be somebody transformed by Jesus. So he said, listen, if you're going to suffer, if you steal and you're a thief, you're going to suffer the consequences of that. So as a believer, you cannot do that. So let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief. And then he, he says, in case, I, in case I just don't miss anybody, um, don't be an evildoer. A believer should not be an evildoer. And this word in the Greek just literally means don't do any kinds of things that are outside of God's heart, God's purposes, God's promises, God's word. Do not be someone who claims the name of Jesus and yet does things that look like you don't know Jesus. So those three are pretty understandable, correct? So let's talk about meddler. What does meddler mean? This was interesting as I studied this week. Um, 
And this is what the word means. Um, it's a Greek word. It's really long, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, okay? Um, I can speak some German, but I cannot speak these long Greek words. Short Greek words I can handle. But it means this. Okay, it's a word that means um, a self-appointed overseer of someone else's life. Do you know anybody like that in your life? Somebody who is a meddler, that's somebody who believes that God has called them as a Christian to look at your life or our lives and to have opinions about that and to speak into that when it's not been invited. This is a meddler. So that's one aspect of the definition. There's several of them, but that's one of them. And you can see people like this in the church. Did you know that? People like this actually come to church who look around and go, boy, it is my job to tell Martha what she ought to do. I don't work in the children's ministry, but I'm going to watch and I'm going to observe and I'm going to speak into it. Or I'm going to watch and I'm going to observe about what they do about the grounds or the building or whatever it is. Or I'm, I'm going to look at that family and those kids, boy, those kids I see at church sometimes, they run in the sanctuary. That is sinful. Do you know it's not really sinful to run in here? This is just a building, right? We're the house of God now, okay? So should we be respectful in here? Yeah, sure, we should, always, okay? But let's not confuse Christianity. God used to house himself on earth in a building. He doesn't do that anymore. Praise God for that. We're the house now. So here he is. This person is someone who meddles and is opinionated and speaks into people's lives where it's not welcomed. So that's one aspect of the definition. Another aspect of the definition, it may be a little more likely in what it meant, was that there were those in the first century, even some believers, who wanted to be revolutionaries against the Roman government. And so they would, they would meddle with stuff within society and create problems, and it gave a f- bad witness to, to who Jesus was. Did Jesus, let's just go back to look at the four Gospels. Did Jesus ever rail against Rome? Did we read it? Never. As a matter of fact, Paul writes, Romans 13, we respect governing authorities. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter told us, you honor the emperor. The emperor was Nero who was persecuting these people that Peter was writing to. And Peter tells them, we know Nero is, is persecuting you, but you honor the emperor. So there's not a call upon our lives to rebel against the government where we agitate, where society at large gets really angry at Christians. It's okay for society at large, biblically, to be angry at believers when our life is a life of holiness and righteousness. But if we want to stir up trouble by being an agitator of things, then the idea here is that's not a biblical reason to do so. So we live in such a way that points out God's holiness, that wrath is coming from God to those who do not know Him. The world does not like that. Yes, at times we speak, and it does agitate the world, but we're not trying to stir up trouble. And that's likely what Peter is talking about here. Don't be somebody in your culture that everywhere you go, you meddle in stuff and you stir up stuff, because eventually over time, people are going to go, Every Christian's like that. That's not a transformed life. And so we live in such a way to where we don't meddle to cause problems. Let me give a, let me give a few biblical definitions 
and examples of this. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, this is what he says. He says, we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Not just a little bit, but do this. But I want you to do it and do it more. And I want you to do it more. And here's what he wants them to do. To aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly, watch this, before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then, I guess they didn't get it, so he writes the second letter to them. In 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12, he says this. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. So he says, some of you... You don't work, and you're expecting to be fed, and you're not busy working, but you're busy bodies. And it's the same idea. What were they doing? They, were, they would meddle in other people's lives, and they would meddle in other things. And so he says, now such persons we command and encourage in Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So, so Peter says, listen, there's a, there's a right reason to suffer for your faith. And that's when you live holiness and holiness and righteousness. And that's gonna, that will, in a sense, agitate the world, but it's not intended to do so. But then there's also a way to live in such, such a way that you suffer, but it has nothing to do with righteousness. It's murder. It's thievery. It's evil doing. And it's meddling in things and stirring up things in the culture that makes Christians, it makes the glory of Jesus look differently. So Peter wants to indicate, listen, you've got to see this. And then there's something fascinating in the second thing I want to look at. Look at verse 16. And yet, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So first thing this morning, we must suffer for the right reason. Secondly, this morning, the sufferer's identity and and confidence. And let let me talk about that here for just a moment. Did you notice an interesting word in verse 16? Look at it again. This is a response question, okay? So this is a literal response question. I don't do a whole lot of these, but I want a response back. There's an interesting word in verse 16 that you don't hardly see at all in the New Testament. You may see what it is. Nope. Christian. Christian. The word Christian is only mentioned twice in the entire New Testament. It's um, found originally in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, in Antioch. It was in Antioch where the believers there from the outside world labeled the followers of Jesus Christians. The only other time in the New Testament the word Christian is used is right here in 1 Peter 4. So I want to talk about that just for a moment because it, it really identifies and gives some identity to who you and I are. And that's really, really important. We use this word all the time. And originally... Uh, Christ followers called themselves Christ followers. They called themselves brothers or brethren. Um, they also called themselves saints. Uh, we know early on in Acts they were called people of the way, that they knew that they were people walking with Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The Hebrews, the Jewish non believers, labeled the early Christians as Nazarenes, and that was a demeaning word. Um, as you, you recall, can anything good come? Um, and so, so this was a demeaning word, but over in originally when the word Christian was used, it was not used as a positive word. Let me, give you a, let me give you a little bit of understanding of this. Every Roman citizen throughout the empire, once a year had to go to a temple wherever they lived. 
They had to go in and burn incense, and they had to proclaim out loud, Caesar is God. And they were called, those who did this, who followed emperor worship, they were called Kaiser Ranos. Well, over time, Christians come to faith, and they would not go to a temple to say, Caesar is God. They would not, they would not do it. And so there began to be this divide, and there began to be this communication talking about what these people who followed Jesus believed. And over time, believers in Caesar, worshipers of Caesar, Kaiseranos, eventually they began to call those who wouldn't do that, who followed Jesus, Christianos. And so it was kind of a play on words, but it was used originally as a derogatory term toward believers. And it became known as to the believers from outsiders because of their worship of Christ and their refusal to be a worshiper of Caesar. And if you were labeled a Christian, and that was your identity in the first century, it meant two things. It meant one, danger, and two, it was a derogatory term. Much danger, there would be, if you were called Christian and you spoke up for that, there was arrest, there was potential death, beatings, uh, loss of property, as Hebrews talks about that later in that, and even your life. It cost a lot to carry the name Christian in the first century, and actually for about the first three centuries. It was a very, very difficult word. Some of the second century Christian apologists, those are those who defend the faith, they wrote this. They said, the only charge on which true Christians were ever convicted was the charge of being a Christian. And that's what they were writing in the second century about the rest and the persecution of believers at that time. So originally it was used as a derogatory term to mock believers, and it was given to them by outsiders who hated them. I love this reality of things because God just does this a lot. The world just kind of says some things about us and pushes some things about us, and over time God just does, oh yeah, watch what I'll do. I will use that for the glory of my name. And over time, believers began to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ. I am marked by who he is. And, and what the world meant derogatory, believers began to embrace and began to say, my identity is Christian. It's, it is a Jesus-centered word, Christian. Christ-centered word. And so while the world meant it to persecute and demean and to mock, believers began to embrace it and say, yeah, that's who I am. I follow Jesus. I am a Christian. It's interesting, at the end of, chapter, of Acts is 28 chapters. In chapter 6, Paul is before Agrippa. And Paul is having this conversation with Agrippa. And listen to what it says, Acts 26, 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul's just saying, okay, Agrippa, this has been out there about Jesus and our proclamation about him. It's not just been in a corner, hidden somewhere. And then Paul says, and then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to him, in a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Agrippa used that word, and, and it was already, we understand now, embraced because Agrippa using it probably derogatory way before Paul. And then Paul said, whether short or long, I loved Paul. 
And I, again, I think I said this last week, I hope when we get to heaven that we're just, that we get to talk and, and there's, there's a little bit of that, just, just that discussion with people about faith. And Paul just says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become such as I am, except for the chains that I am wearing. So our identity is Christian. So when you and I say that word today, we should be proud of that word. It's a Christ-centered word. It's a word that's been used for the last 2,000 years. Originally derogatory, now is one that identifies us in who we are. And so he says this, let... If you are insulted, so he, so he says that, look at that. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if anyone has that name and it costs you in your life, let him not be ashamed. This word ashamed means dishonored. So he says, don't feel dishonored about being called that. This is an honoring word. And so already as Peter's writing this, believers, probably Peter wrote this in AD 64, believers already were saying, I'm a Christian. They had already begun to embrace that, that this is a reality about who I am. This is a name that identifies who I am, and I'm not ashamed of this name. So the name Christian reminded them that they were not connected to creeds, that they were not connected to rituals, they were not connected to sayings. The name Christian meant this, they were connected to Christ. And it set them apart from everybody within their culture. The name lended itself to not being ashamed as they embraced it. Because as I said a while ago, it's the most Christ-centered name that became the reality in the first century. Paul said this to the Roman believers, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. So he says this. He says, listen, I want, I want to remind you, the sufferer's identity is connected to this. Your identity is you're a Christian. You're a Christ follower, and you should not be ashamed. And then he also said this, but let the person who is persecuted for their faith, for that name, let them stand in that name and glorify God in that name. And you read through the first century and the second century and third century and throughout the history of the church, believers have stood in the name of Jesus. They've stood and proclaimed, I'm a follower of Christ. It's cost them their lives. It's cost them freedom. It's cost them property. But they stood in the name and just said, I will not deny who I am. I have been bought and redeemed by Jesus. And so I will follow him no matter what. Caesar ruled the world but he could not rule the hearts of believers satan has such power and influence in our world today in evil but for those of us here we love jesus and we will not yield to what he desires we stand and so so he says this let's put it all together and yet if anyone suffers as a christian for that name don't be ashamed of that But stand in that name Christian, and as you stand in it, lift your hands, lift your life, yield your heart, yield your mind, yield your feet, yield your time, yield your money, and glorify God in that name. So we stand today in a building at 6374 County Road 161 in McKinney, and here's what we do. We stand here today, and we say this, we together corporately stand in the name Christian, and we will glorify God in that name, regardless of the laws, regardless of the government, regardless of anything we will be the best citizens of this country showing what it looks like to be transformed by God I would remind us as well 
that this one who's writing this letter to these people to not be ashamed is one who had learned about shame. He had denied Jesus in his most desperate hour three times. He's weeping in the streets of Jerusalem, broken over that. And he had learned about moving on from shame. And now Peter, standing strong, eventually, Scripture doesn't tell us this, but early church writers tell us that Peter was married, or the indication was that Peter was married, and he and his wife were crucified about the same day and the same time. She was crucified first, and the tradition tells us that as she was being crucified before him, that Peter kept saying to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. When it came time for Peter to be crucified, the tradition tells us that Peter did not want to be crucified right side up, but he, was, he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord, so he was crucified upside down with his head down to the ground. That's a person who learned to recover from shame and one who stood and understood, I'm a Christ follower and I will go all the way. And now he says this, there's a soberness of the hour. And so he says in verse 17, look at it. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who reject the gospel of God? And 17 says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, if the righteous scarcely get into the kingdom of heaven, what is going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so he he says, look, there's a soberness of the hour that's critical for us. Let me talk about it. First thing is this. <clears throat> I, fascinating, I think. And I, I, there was some fresh perspective for me um, this week in, in studying this text. And I want to share it with you. Persecution is coming to the believers that Peter is writing to. Persecution has continued for the last 2,000 years to people who know Jesus. And he's saying this, Peter is saying this, there is a time that has come. The word time here in the, in the Greek is not chronos, which means clock time. It's kairos, and it means this, a season of time, an, an appointed time, a, a, a dispensation. We are living that started at the cross when Jesus died in the church age, when the church was established. This is the season that we are living in, and it began back when Jesus died. When he came and he lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised again, and this all started. He ascended, and the Spirit came, and the church age was birthed, and so we are living in this. Peter, a few weeks ago, it said this, the end of all things is at hand. It's here. So we are in a season, and it's interesting what Peter does here. He's saying this season of judgment starts with the church and it's going to end at the great, great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. But the first place God from the birth of the church was going to begin to bring judgment, his ultimate judgment was on the church, was on the followers of God. So we're in a season where a big piece of God's judgment and his working of his spirit comes first, not to the lost world, but to believers. And so you may go, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. I think it makes perfect sense. 
God wants a people on the earth to live in such a way of such passion and love for him that even in the midst of persecution, they stand in the name Jesus and they glorify his name. And he, throughout the centuries, and although throughout the centuries at times it's been really, really dark and there's been fewer witnesses, watch this. From the very beginning, God has desired a pure bride, a righteous bride, And so what God has done from the very beginning is he has used persecution to purify his bride, to purge the church of people who are pretending to be believers. And he has disciplined the church. And his first work of judgment starts at the church. And that's what Peter's saying here. I find that interesting and fascinating. And I think it's extremely wise of God as well. All throughout in our lifetime as well, God will continue to purify and use persecution to purge the church. The reason the American church is so apathetic and powerless and churches in other parts of the world, particularly eastern parts of the world where there's, it's really, really difficult to be a believer is that persecution is brought a refining fire. I saying a while ago, refiner's fire, purify my heart, make me be gold, refine me. It's brought a refining that's made the believers in those nations because it costs something to really live their faith. How many people do you and I meet who say, yeah, I'm a Christian? (laughs) And we go, really? Man, what you post, how you talk, how you live, I would never think that you've been marked by the blood of Jesus. And over time, you know what God does? God refines those people and he'll purge the church and he'll send them out. There'll be a calling of righteousness and internal righteousness within the local body of church. And people don't want to walk with that. God will purge and he'll bring a refinement that comes. So he does it in our lives and he does it in the church. So there's a soberness of the hour. And watch this. Watch what Peter says. And if God is bringing judgment, and again, let me just say this. I I should have said this, but let me say it. I would much rather be persecuted than spend an eternity suffering. I'd rather suffer in this life for righteousness sake than spend an eternity suffering separated from God. And that's what he's talking about here. And if God's going to bring judgment and it's going to begin at the household of God, he's going to refine the church in persecution and suffering and if he does with us, what's going to be the outcome of those who reject the gospel? We've embraced the gospel, and there's a refining that comes to us. It's only going to come in this lifetime, because after this lifetime's over, those of us who know Jesus, we will live with him forever in heaven. But what's, and, and he says, and he says, and he quotes, Peter quotes Proverbs 16, 11, If the righteous is scarcely, this word scarcely means fighting, barely, barely getting in. Now, let me, let me make sure you understand this. It doesn't mean that when Jesus died on the cross, it was just barely enough to get us in. Okay, that, that diminishes the glory of Jesus and, and his sacrifice. So that's not what it means that the righteous scarcely get into heaven because of the cross. But what it means is simply this. Watch this, and I hope it wells up in us, this reality. What happened here was so unbelievable, staggering. We can never, this side of earth, get what happened here. But if we could kind of grasp it, 
we would understand that our sin and our sin nature was so heinous and awful that it cost God leaving the throne room of heaven where he was worshipped to come here to take on skin. And to, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sin was such a big deal that it cost Jesus his life. And I think for us as a church to not get the the reality and the glory of that, shame on us. But if we could get it, I think it would transform us to live righteously. There's a passage in Ezekiel 9-6, and God is, as you know, Ezekiel is writing during the exile, and he's continuing to write about God's judgment upon Israel and their rejection of God. And it says this, this, this is harsh. Listen to these words. God's going to bring judgment. And so Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 9.6, Kill the old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And then he says this, And begin at my sanctuary. So I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to refine it, because these people have been mocking my name. So that what's behind the starting of his judgment with the church is this... The church has been given great privilege because of great knowledge. And with great privilege and great knowledge comes great responsibility. And there will be a stronger judgment that will be brought. And so it's the judgment on the church comes here. And I hope it would move us. If you've got a friend or a parent, brother, a spouse that doesn't know the Lord, you know what their judgment's going to be? Eternal. It's not going to be a judgment here. God's refining, bringing judgment upon his church here. But when this life is over, if they don't know Jesus, there's a wrath and there's a judgment that comes that is horrible. And so Peter twice there says this. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what's going to become of those who reject the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of those what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And the idea there is not good. Nothing good's going to come for them. And so we want to sound the trumpet. Come to Jesus. Come to faith in Jesus. Yield your heart. Yield to Him. I read this week, I don't know why I do this to myself. I read some Christian women writer blogs and men writer blogs that everybody in the evangelical world here in our country just thinks are unbelievably amazing. And I was astounded at the things I read this week. And I'm not going to mention their names. Maybe I should sometime. But I just was, I was amazed that these leading Christian bloggers in the church today that people espouse talk about that we're really not that bad, that our nature's really not that bad, that there's stuff in us that's really good. And that just says, no, we had, a, we had nothing good in us. There's nothing good in us. It was, we were so bad that God had to die. God had to die. And he had to be mocked. He had to hang on the cross naked, by the way, 
television has to, Mel Gibson has to sanitize the cross. He hung naked on the cross. Jesus did. Naked. And it, it, it just a reminder to us that, man, the cross just tells us, listen, this is a big deal, this sin thing. It's a really, really big deal to God, and, and it costs God much. And so judgment begins with the household of God, and then it moves out to the world. And sometimes we look at the world and we just go, God, will you, will you do something about these evil people? And God is delaying the payment for their sin, and it's going to come. You can read, read it in Revelation chapter 20. It's going to come. We don't necessarily see it in our lifetime. But again, I just want to remind us as we wind this down <clears throat> that we ought to be the ones who are sounding the alarm for those who don't know about who Jesus is. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we've got to talk. We've got to spread the word. We've got to do so. And, you know, missions comes at great cost. It comes at great, great cost to get the gospel out. All right, let's look at the last thing. The sufferer's marks of faithfulness. So Peter closes up these last thoughts, these last extended thoughts on suffering, and he just says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Three marks. One is simply this. For those who love the name Christian, they stand in the name, they glorify God even in the midst of trouble. They stand and they glorify Him. God's will matters to them more than anything else. More than their life, more than safety, more than comfort. And so let those who suffer according to God's will, they just will continue to do so. And so they love God's will. Secondly, here's what they do. They entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Watch this. Beautiful. Though it's the idea of stewardship, that everything we've been given belongs to who? Us or to God? God. So our very life belongs to God. He's given us life. And so those who have been redeemed and have been made by Him and been rescued by Him, and they're being persecuted for God's will, and they love God's will, and they continue to stay in God's will, and it brings more persecution and more suffering. Let them in the midst of that and trust themselves. Let them give back their life in faithfulness to the one who actually gave them life, and so they entrust. This word entrust is a banking term. Back in the first centuries, they didn't have banks. There wasn't BBVA and, and Wells Fargo. What you would do is you would give money to a trusted friend if you were going to go away, and when you came back, that trusted friend would give that back. And what Peter's talking about here by using this word, then in the midst of persecution, just give your life to Jesus and continue to entrust it to the one who made you. He's a faithful creator. He's trustworthy. Don't worry. Don't fear. God's will's got to matter most. You've got to trust your soul to him who is faithful. Leave your whole life with him. And lastly, even in the midst of they don't like you living your faith, Peter says this, and you do good. You do good even though they don't like what you're doing. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I want to close with this this morning. I saw this in two places this week as I was studying. A guy named Jeffrey Bull, he and a friend uh, moved to China in March of 1947. They wanted to work with the Tibetan people. So let me just read something to you and let these thoughts 
Here's a real life 20th century. I know we're in the 21st century, but not too long ago. In March of 1947, Bull and his fellow laborer, George Patterson of Scotland, sailed for China. They traveled to the far interior of China to the border area shared with Tibet, where they first studied the Chinese language. After three years of intensive linguistic study, they were able to get a working knowledge of that tongue and also the Tibetan language. Toward the end of that time, they began to move into the borderland of Tibet and to make some good contacts with tribal leaders whose realm of influence reached well into Tibet. They were learning the culture and the religion of these people to whom God had called them. They lived among them in in their nomadic lifestyle. They learned to ride their high-spirited ponies, and they ate the food of these people. About that time, the Chinese communists took control of Tibet, and Bull witnessed the last days of Tibetan independence and was taken into captivity for more than three years. At first, Bull was in solitary confinement. Later, he was confined to a Chinese prison where he underwent all the subtle mental torture of re-education and thought reform. His friend George had been given permission earlier by Tibet to travel to the border of India, and for the first 12 months, Jeffrey was kept in solitary confinement in a very small cell where he had hardly enough room to even turn around. He likened it to the experience of the Lord Jesus, whom from his realms of glory as master of the universe was through his incarnation confined to the limitations of a human body. And at the age of 30, when he had been held for three years and two months by the Chinese communists, part of the time he was released, part of the time he was held in solitary confinement, he was half-starved, threatened, badgered, subjected to the infernal techniques of brainwashing, He was desperately holding on to some power objectivity with his brain that he began to study the six different kinds of mosquitoes that were in his prison cell just to kind of keep his mind alive and to keep his sanity. In the midst of all of this, he had a piece of paper and a pencil, and he wrote a long poem, and I just want to share a portion of that as we close. This was his prayer in the midst of horrible suffering. God, let not thy face grow dim. Dear God, nor sense of thee depart. Let not the memory of thy word burn low within my heart. Let not my spirit, Lord, grow numb through loneliness or fears. And let not my heart to doubt succumb to keep my eyes from tears. Let not the distance come between as months and years increase. And let not the darkness close me in. Let me not lose thy peace. Let not the pressure of the foe crush out my love for thee and let not the tiredness and the woe eclipse thy victory and he closed with this for thy joy is my joy and my hope thy day and thy kingdom gracious God shall never pass away that's a believer who lived 1 Peter 4 I want to live like that do you (laughs) my flesh says I don't want to go through any trouble I like comfortable chairs and air conditioning. I just, I, I like it. But could there be something about a faith in Jesus that we're going to miss out in our lifetime if we don't know what it's like to share in the fellowship of his sufferings? And I think Paul would say, if all I got to do was share in the sufferings of Jesus, give me it. I'll take that if that's all I get because there's something about knowing him in the depth of trouble that there's a sweetness there and many of us have been there 
maybe not through persecution. We've been there through other things. And we know the taste of his presence in those moments. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Great teaching from a man who denied Jesus one night three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. One time he cussed. The Greek tells us that he cussed. And Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked at Peter as he was denying him. That man who did that wrote these words about, I'm going to stand in that name and I'm going to glorify him. I'm going to glorify God in that name. What a challenge to us. Let's pray.